This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Well, hey, everybody, it's so good to be with you. We're in a series called Friends. If you've been around for the last few weeks, you already know. I mean, this has been a, uh, a challenging series. Ben, every week, feel like you're kind of walking out with something that was maybe a little heavy, but also probably that you needed to hear. And today, we're going to talk about something that, in some regards, some of us really want to talk about. There's also a part of us that doesn't. We're going to talk about family today and how the relationships within family often are so challenging. But before we get started, um, I want to let you know that this Wednesday, this Wednesday, we have First Wednesday, if you've never been, First Wednesday is an opportunity for us to gather on a Wednesday. It starts at 7. We worship. There's teaching. It's just like being in a church, but it's on a Wednesday night and maybe a little bit more worship than we're used to. And we're actually going to do some things this Wednesday. We're going to invite you to come forward for prayer. If you're sick and need to be prayed over, if you've got something going on in your life and you just need prayer, you want to be at First Wednesday. It's going to be a good opportunity for all of that. Can't wait to share that with you this Wednesday, 7 p.m. at our downtown campus. Now, um, today we're going to deal with the question, why is family, why are the relationships within family so challenging? Next week, we're going to talk about how does the Holy Spirit impact our marriage? And I'm going to invite my wife, Amanda's going to be with me. And uh, we're, we're going to teach through that together. We, we've talked about doing that for a while, so can't, can't, really can't wait for that next week. It's going to be a lot, a lot of fun. How y'all doing? But today we're going to deal with that topic of why is family, specifically the relationships within it, why are they so challenging? And, and here's, I'm going to get real practical and then we're going to get real spiritual. So the real practical answer as to why is family so challenging is this, that greater intimacy leads to greater challenges. Greater intimacy leads to greater challenges. Now, we often use the word intimacy to describe kind of affection, right? And so we might talk about there, that you're, you're being intimate and, and use that in a term that would describe something that would be happening between a married man and woman, okay? But, but there are different dynamics of intimacy. There, there's what we call social intimacy. That's kind of how our, our time and the way we spend our time intertwines. There's emotional intimacy. That's how my emotions and their emotions get intertwined. There's financial intimacy. That's how my finances and their finances are intertwined. There's spiritual intimacy. There's a lot of different dynamics that go with intimacy, and that's why there is no more intimate place than a family. And because it's that intimate, because we share time and space and love and, and history, there is distinct challenges that come with that. So let me go through those uh, just real quickly. This is not a comprehensive list, but greater intimacy leads to greater. And if you're taking notes, the first one is conflict. It, it is, con I mean, the more intimate the relationship, 
the greater the conflict. Some of us grew up with this identity that if I have a healthy relationship, I won't have conflict. Please hear me. I'm going to say this very clear. Healthy relationships have healthy conflict. Now, I didn't say fighting. Okay, we, we oftentimes will take the wrong term and put it there, and people say, we never fight. Well, that's, for most people, what they hear is, you don't have any conflict? I want that, right? That's not healthy. You have no conflict. That means one of you is passive and one of you is controlling, okay? That's not healthy. Great relationships have healthy healthy conflict. You know, the Bible says two times in the book of Proverbs, that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. How does iron sharpen iron? Conflict. Conflict. Conflict is, is healthy. It's healthy. And in the context of intimate relationships, we will experience significant conflict. Now, now let me make an application that some of y'all need to hear. You will look outside your family, outside your marriage and go, man, this friendship is better than my marriage because I don't have conflict in there. No, you don't have conflict because you're really not that close. You don't have conflict because you're not that intimate. And if you got that intimate, you got that close, you'd have that kind of conflict. It's a lie. And it'll cause you to value other relationships that aren't what you think they are because you have an ideal placed on your relationship that says conflict means it's, no, conflict means you're, you're moving in a direction, you're, you're, you're challenging each other. All that's healthy. Great, great relationships have healthy conflict. Greater intimacy, then here's another one, leads to greater vulnerability. And when we hear that term vulnerability, a lot of times we think that's where I, like, I just bare my soul. They know all my deepest, darkest secrets. They know my, my inclinations. Like I, I tell them when I blew it, right? All those kinds of things. But that's not necessarily what it means. In the context of that type of intimacy, when we live in family, we really get to know somebody. I, I see this now with parents, especially parents that have parented kids into their 20s and 30s. You've, you've got to see them become adults, and you know them in a way often that they don't even know themselves, which is why often the boldest conversation that can happen in the context of family is when somebody goes, listen, I love you, and you're not acting like I know you can. I see you making decisions. I see you living a way that is well below the person that I know you can be. I see something in you that's better than that. Well, that comes out of vulnerability, right? That, that, that I was known. This is why, like, your family knows the gross habits that you have, right? They know that, like, he lays in bed at night and picks his toes, right? They know that. They know that about you, and they still love you. That's vulnerability, Greater intimacy leads to greater vulnerability. And then it leads to, and this is one we don't like. Number three, greater intimacy leads to greater hurt. Greater hurt. I've done a lot of, I've done some of your weddings, okay? And uh, you, you look and, you know, I walk out with the groom and that dude's been working out nine months to look that good in that tuxedo. You know, I mean, he's just a stud. And you walk out and you're standing and then the bride comes in and, she hadn't eaten like seven weeks so she could fit into that dress. And they're looking at each other like, man, I'm, this is going to be awesome. 
And I, I'm always tempted, I'm always tempted to lean over and whisper into one of their ears and goes, nobody is going to hurt you deeper than them. Because when somebody gets that kind of access to your heart, the wounds are not shallow. The wounds are deep. And because we are all sinners, sin is going to find its way into our marriage. And there is going to be woundedness. And you, you know what? There are some of you, when I said we're going to talk about family, your first inclination, I don't want to talk about family. Because you don't know the kind of hurt that I have from that. And the hurt might have been from a spouse. It might have been from a mom or a dad. You know, I don't want to talk about that. Who wants to talk about that? And it's because there's significant hurt that was born out of significant intimacy. If you're in here and you're thinking about getting married, um, that doesn't sound too promising, does it? <laughs> Please hear me. There's nothing that is probably more painful than family. There's nothing that will help you grow more than your family. It's worth the pain. God won't waste it. But when you think about those things, conflict and, and pain, how do, how do we overcome conflict and pain? It's, it's grace. That's how we overcome. As believers, the Bible promises us that in our relationship with God, we have access to something in his heart for us called Grace. Hebrews 4 says it this way. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to what? To help us in our time of need. And some of y'all come in this morning in a place with your family that you have a high level of need right now. There's something going on with your kids. There's something going on in your marriage. There's something happening in your relationship with your parents. And you're like, I need some help. What you're saying is, is I need grace. I need God's grace. And you know what's so interesting about that verse? Is it describes the throne on which God sits as grace. This is what upholds his majesty. God sits on a throne of grace. And his grace is available for us when we are in a time of need. Okay? Greater intimacy leads to greater challenges. That's just practical. But let's get real spiritual here. Every family, your family, this is number two, why is this so challenging? Your family has a sinful past. Some of us are, are, are yes, yes, my dad was an alcoholic and he was abusive and I don't never want to be around a man like that. Mom was an addict, she was controlling, and I don't ever want to be around a woman like that. This is harder for those of us that come from pretty good families. Because every family, every family has a sinful past. I told you this last week, this is not heaven. This world that we live in right now is not heaven. You're not there yet. 
And because this isn't heaven, we know this world is not perfect. I am not perfect. And because this world is not perfect, and I'm not perfect, and they're not perfect, no family is perfect. None of them. There's consequences to the sin that has lingered in families. And we see this really, Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy 5. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses is retelling the Ten Commandments. Now you remember the story of Moses. Moses is, is sent by God back to Egypt where all of his people, the, the Israelites, have been enslaved. And Moses shows up, let my people go. And the, the Pharaoh's like, ain't no way I'm letting them go. But over a series of interactions and miracles and plagues, he finally... Take them, get them out of here. I don't want this to keep going on. And they changes his mind, right? And they're actually, God leads them to the shore of the Red Sea where they have no other, there's no direction. And the, the Pharaoh changes his mind, sends his army, go get them back. And they're caught between the sea and caught between the oncoming army. And Moses hears from God, take your, the, the, the shaft that you're walking with, this, this shepherd's shaft, reach out and touch the Red Sea. And he does it and it parts. And they walk through on dry ground, and God releases the waters, and it crashes down on the army. You know that archaeologically in the past week, they found a chariot, a Egyptian chariot on the bottom of the Red Sea. Somehow the Bible's still true. All right, so, so, I mean, here we are, right? On the other side of the Red Sea, they go to Mount Sinai. Moses climbs up. The glory of God envelops him. He receives the Ten Commandments, and he comes back down carrying the Ten that God wrote. And he walks down, and what happened? The people realize, we got to take care of ourselves now. Oh, we got to find our own food. We got to find our own water. We got to govern our, I want to go back. It was easier there. It was, we, were, we were taken care of there. Take us back. And while he was on the mountain, they built a golden calf to worship, which was symbolic of them saying, I want to go back. So in Deuteronomy 5, he's going to retell the Ten Commandments, but it's not quite as simple as it was the first time. And he starts off with this, verse 7, you shall have no other gods before me. Right, this is the first commandment. Have no other God. This is it. No other gods. Martin Luther said the first commandment is the only commandment needed. Every other commandment is given to show us when we have broken the first commandment. Because when I lied, I chose a different God. When I cheated, I chose a different God. When I murdered, I chose a different God. Have no other gods before me. And, and when we think about family, okay, I want you to watch what he says next in verse 8 and 9. Look at this. You shall, this is so practical. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. And you shall not bow down to them or worship them. He's saying, listen, you're going to be tempted in life to see some things that you go, that's awesome. I'm going to bow down and worship it. A relationship, a person, a career. You're going to be tempted. But watch what he says here. You shall not bow down to them and worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. 
Now, I'm going to be emphatic about this because some of y'all need to hear it this way. Some of y'all will look me in the eyes and say, I love my kids. I'd do anything for them. But you would look at somebody that hurt you and wounded you and say, I'm not going to forgive them. You look at your money and your finances and say, I know God wants me to be a giver, but I'm going to hold on to this. This is my money. You'd look me straight in the eye and say, I'm going to disobey God. Oh, I love my kids. I'd do anything for them, knowing that your disobedience has generational consequences on your family. Some of y'all are living in it right now because you've seen it come to life in your kids when you're completely rejective of the ways God has asked you to live. Don't you lie to me and tell me that you do anything for your kids. What's happening in this moment is Moses saw it happen. He saw the people reject God, and then he wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness doing about 100 funerals a day when God said, those people will not enter my promise. They're all going to die before I allow this people to become my people and my promise. He watched it happen. And he does not want it to be repeated again. He lets them know, listen, you reject God, there are generational consequences for it. But then there's a but. When I'm reading scripture, sometimes I get excited about a but. And it's a good but. I'm just saying, it's a good but. There's a but. Remember, the third or fourth generation of those that hate me, but look, but showing Mercy, come on, thank you. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. While sin might have an effect for about three or four generations, the decision for somebody in their family to stand up and say, I'm gonna live for God has thousands of generations of implications. Moses is saying, I've seen it. I've seen the generations die off. But I want you to know, if you'll stand up and love God and keep his commandments, God can change your family. I live this out. This is a part of my testimony. In 1996, when I gave my life to Jesus, my family was not attending church at all. And to be honest, when I made that decision, there was so much in my life culturally that was pushing against it. Now, my family took me to church when I was a kid, but somewhere in that time of of adolescence, we we just kind of drifted away from. And when I came to know Jesus, my sister didn't know Jesus. My family wasn't attending church. But something happened in me. I mean, when God, when God changed me, God changed me. It was, it was not, this was no simple thing for me. And it rewrote who I was and what I thought about myself and what my life was going to look like. And I can say this sincerely. 25 years later, my family has been changed by that decision. The first time I ever preached, as horrible as it was, my sister sat in the back and gave her life to Jesus. My family, most of y'all know that. My family is here 
in serving God. And I want you to hear that because you might be in here today and your family might not be living for God. You might be the one person who's on the outside, but I want you to hear this. If you'll stand up and say, I'm gonna follow you, I'm gonna live for you, I don't care what kind of culture I find myself, I don't care what kind of resistance I experience. If you'll do that, God will change your family. There are generational positive blessings when you stand up and say, I'm gonna follow God. There's general generational sin and curses when we don't but when we do man there's generational implications in the in the blessings and the favor of God family why is it challenging I mean the first one is that greater intimacy creates greater challenges the second one is that every family has a sinful past and then the real this is you want to just make it real practical and simple for every person in the room why why is is, is family so challenging? Number three, because you're in your family. Oh, it's so easy to blame other people, ain't it? I mean, we're in this moment because if you saw what my spouse did, oh, how bad is that? If you saw my kids, they just can't get their acts together. I mean, my mom and my dad, and they did this and this and this, and then because of that, well, here I am. I'm the victim. No, you're not. No, you're not. Why is it challenging? You. Don't shift the blame. I told you this last week. You are not a good person. Jesus asked one time, what about, what, what, what's, aren't you good? Aren't you a good teacher? No, I'm not. Only God is good. So by Jesus' standards, if you're not God, you're not good. Which means that most of us, we need to understand that I'm not perfect. I'm not. So can we talk about the perfect family? Because some of y'all think you've seen it, just not in your family, but in other families. Can we talk about it? I did a little whiteboard today. So here we go. Here we go. The perfect family. Subtitled, How You Ruined Your Family. A comedy. This is you right here. Look at you. Take a moment. Gander at that greatness. <laughs> can I make a few observations about you? Just look at this. Look at this. Next slide. What's with that pointy head? Is that a foot or are you dragging some teepee? I don't know. All right, you have a crazy small torso and a really long neck. I don't know if you noticed that yet. And you have a really stupid smile on your face. <laughs> now let's just say that somehow God does bring you into the perfect family. Imagine this, okay? Here we go. Imperfect you and, oh, you're coming home from work. It's your perfect wife, perfect kids. There's, there's, welcome home. Perfect family, we're so excited, imperfect you. What happens when an imperfect you, and the thing is, you know you're imperfect. You know there's stuff about you that's not right. But what happens when you imperfectly get involved with the, let's just say it was a perfect family, this is what happens. It's the no longer perfect family. <laughs> oh, look at that, the frowny faces give it away, don't they? No longer, here's, here's the point. Since you're not perfect, every relationship you have will be imperfect. Every relationship you have. Tim Keller this week said that when we understand the depths of sin that we are presented in the Bible from our perspective as Christians, we will understand that I will never do anything and not sin. 
which Tahi replied to that, which means I've never prayed and not sinned. I've never preached and not sinned. I've never studied the Bible and not sinned. Because I am consistently corrupted by my own selfish perspective. Every relationship you have, because you are imperfect, will be imperfect. This is why, when I think about it, this is why we need God to be the center of our relationships. I mean, there, there is so much that is coming against you and against your family. And I, I want to ask you just for a moment, what's at the center of your relationships? What's at the center? This is a phrase we use around here a lot. What's at the center of your relationships? And when I say center, what I'm asking is what's guiding you? What's the direction that you're headed? What's the foundation that it's built on? And I need you to understand today that we need Jesus to be the center of everything in our lives. We don't talk about priorities saying, like, God needs to be your number one priority. I mean, go down your priority list. Like, God needs to be the center of your family, of your job, of your finances, of your friends. He needs to be the center of it all. And when you look at how difficult it can be, how challenging it is to do family, I want you to see today that the Holy Spirit reshapes our families. I mean, think about the challenges we just walked through. The, the challenge of greater intimacy, which produces greater conflict and greater pain. The, the challenge that we have in, in, in our family's sinful past. And that's not just the family that we've created, but the families that are represented by the origins of our family. The imperfections that we carry in to every relationship. There are significant, significant challenges in our relationships. And the Holy Spirit reframes that and actually helps to lead us out of them. And so here's the first thing that I'd make just as an observation in your notes. Number one, the Holy Spirit leads us out of our sinful past. The Holy Spirit leads us out of our sinful past. I mean, go back to Moses when he goes to Egypt. This is a a point of the narrative of redemption that's continually stressed, right? He shows up, the, the Israelites are enslaved, let my people go, and then they let them, and they've got to literally walk out of their place of captivity. You know, we all have a place that's like Egypt. We all have a place in our past that has kept us captive. Maybe for you, that's a place of addiction. Maybe that's for you, a place where you have tried to be controlling. Maybe for you, that's been a place of fear. But we all have a place of Egypt where the Holy Spirit is at work to lead us out of that because God is in the redemption business. God is all about redeeming people. I love this phrase. It's so connected to the, the truth of the Bible, to be redeemed. You maybe have showed up before, maybe like a a grocery store with a coupon. I, I want to redeem this coupon, which means that there's value in it. And in the exchange, I get to see how valuable it is. It's the word that's used here in Titus 2, verse 17. This is out of the message paraphrase. Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to free us from a dark, rebellious life into this good, pure life, making us people he can be proud of, energetic in goodness. 
He offered himself as a sacrifice to free us. He redeemed us. There was a price, and he paid it. God paid the price that was needed to get you out of your broken past into the future that he wants for you. You know, the word redeem literally means that once I have purchased you, once I've paid the price, which indicates your value, please understand, no matter who you are today, you are so valuable that God said you are worth the price of his son. To, to be redeemed also means that once I have bought you, I can rename you and repurpose you. Some of y'all need to hear that today because no matter where you came from, God's got a new purpose for you. You might have been something in your past, but God's got something different that through his grace and mercy, as the Holy Spirit leads you, your future is going to look like. Now, one of the topics in the New Testament that had to deal with how does somebody make that leap forward? How do they go from being somebody who's rejected God to somebody who's received God and is now following God was the topic of circumcision, okay, which we're not going to get way deep into today for your benefit because none of us are served by a conversation about penises from the pulpit, okay? So um, here's just the nuts and bolts of it is that, in, for, for Jews, they, they had to be circumcised to be a part of the faith. And so this question becomes, well, what happens now? Do, do, we, do we tell people that they need to be this? And the Apostle Paul answers this question in Romans chapter 2. True circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, pay attention here. It is a change of heart produ produced by the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that comes alive in somebody's heart that begins to change their heart. Circumcision was an outward picture of what God wanted to do on the inside of man when he's redeemed. The Holy Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to lead you out of sin to lead you out of your background, to lead you out of your Egypt. And part of that is convicting you of your sin, and that conviction leads to change. Uh, just hear me out. If you're not willing to change, you're not willing to follow Jesus. If you're not willing to let go of some understandings and some beliefs and some behaviors, you're not willing to follow Jesus. God convicts us, and then out of that conviction, we respond in repentance and change, which lets me know this, that you are, this is attention, that you are, number one, not who you were. Some of y'all need to celebrate that. Thank God I'm not who I was. I'm not an addict anymore. I'm not a drunk anymore. I'm not an abuser anymore. I'm not who I was. But we're also, number two, not yet who we can be. You're in the middle of that tension. I'm not who I was, but I'm not who I can be. The Holy Spirit leads us out of sin. And if you're here and you've been following Jesus for 40 years, there's still something that God still needs to lead you out of. There's a new selfishness. There's a new brokenness. There's a new fear. There is something that God still is redeeming us. Redeeming us. Why? Because look at this. Number two. I love this. The Holy Spirit redefines our families. How is the Holy Spirit working to help us overcome 
the, the many ways it's challenging is the Holy Spirit redefines our family. Think about that for a second. What's the definition of your family? Who is in your family? Who is? Who's in your family? If you were to ask me that casually, I'd probably say, well, it's me and my wife, and we have three kids. We have a 10-year-old uh, daughter, an 8-year-old son, and a 4-year-old son. we got a dog. She's pretty awesome, too. So, I mean, that's our family. If I were being a little bit broader, I might say mom and dad, my sister. There might be some more inclusives. But, but the, the family of God that we see in the Bible, the family of God is very inclusive. If you read through the book of Acts, you come to these places where they're like, well, well what about these people? Well, we used to not think that these people could be in, but, but they seem to be receiving Jesus. They seem to be saying yes to Jesus. They're obeying Jesus. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. What, should we let them in? And the answer is obvious, yes. Let them in, let them in. They've received it. We want them to be a part. Should, what about these people? They used to worship idols and they used to do, well, no, but they're receiving God and they're starting to obey God and they're starting to live in His command. Yes, let them in. It's very inclusive. Most of us have a really shallow understanding of what this is supposed to look like. Because we think about this the way that we think about friends. And you know your friends, right? You talk like they talk. You think like they, they think. You vote like they think. All, you, you just do everything together. But you know that you know, these are my friends, and we, we talk the same way and vote the same way and think the same way and feel the same way. We're, we're, but, but there's a community that's bigger than that. I know there are people that don't think like I do and don't vote like I do, and you know what? We might not be friends, but they're okay. But that's what, this is what changes in a place like this. Every person, including me, that enters that door enters on the same level playing ground. I was a sinner saved by God's grace. God gave me purpose because he has purpose for my life. I will never be perfect, but I am now living to more perfectly reflect his life and mine. All of us, that's where we all come from. And so when we come into a place like this, because we all have that commonality, we can find a different kind of, of relationship. In redemptive community, we can actually be friends with people that don't think like we think and vote like we vote and look like we look. It's how it should be. It's how the Bible talks about this family. In Galatians 4, it says this, God sent his son to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. When we come into a place like this, the things that matter the most are not, do you talk like I talk, look like I look, and vote like I vote. What happens is we, the Spirit of God inside of us looks and goes, that's my dad. And you, you, that's my dad. My kids don't argue about, you know what, do I belong in this family? They look and they go, that's my dad. Another one goes, that's my dad. No. We belong here. That's how we should be in this. That should be the primary and most important place of connection when we walk in that door. That we are redeemed. Romans 8, 
The spirit you received, look at this. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry out, Abba, Father. And Abba, Father means literally Daddy. And if you ever are invited to pray when I'm hosting something and you pray to Daddy God, you will never be invited to pray again. So you know that ahead of time, okay? We're adopted, which means that this family is more expansive and inclusive than we could have ever imagined. We're adopted into God's family, and we need to adopt some people in ours. You know that there are people that my kids call aunt and uncle that are not blood-related. And every once in a while, my, my, my kids will take a step back and go, hey, Dad, um, why do we call him Uncle Shane? Son, he's, he's my brother. Um, no, he's my brother. In God, I prayed for a brother. God gave me Shane. I don't know about you. But I need some brothers and sisters that aren't my brothers and sisters. You need some people in your family that aren't in your family. Some of y'all, some of y'all need to adopt some spiritual sons and daughters. You, you got a lot of wisdom and experience and years to pour into somebody. Some of y'all need some spiritual fathers and mothers. And a lot of us need spiritual brothers and sisters to walk through life with. We need to adopt some people into our family that aren't in our family through God. Family can be bigger, more expansive than we ever imagined. And in that, it can be greater than we ever thought it could be. Now remember earlier I said one of your greatest challenges in your family is you. One of your greatest family challenges in your family is, is you. It's, is, why is family hard? Because you are in your family, all right? So I've said this, we're, we're not good people, right? I'm not a good person. Please hear what I'm about to say. While you're not a good person, that doesn't mean that you can't be a better person, okay? You stop making excuses for yourself. You stop saying, that's okay, okay? You start saying, I, you know what, I can do better. While you're not a good person, you can be a better person, and this is how that works. Number three, the Holy Spirit leads us to be more like Jesus, to be more like Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is talking about this church that's responded to Jesus. And he says something. I want you to look at this. He says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word, I preached to you unless you believed it in vain. 
Do you notice what he said? You are being saved. You know, when we talk about being saved, we talk about it in the past tense. I got saved when I was 18. I got saved when I was 22. I got saved when I was 26. Please hear me out. You did not get saved. You are being saved. You are. This is a present tense phenomenon. Today, God is at work saving you. Tomorrow, God is going to be at work saving you. You are being saved. And how is God doing that? God is saving you by changing you. If you're not willing to be changed, you're not willing to be saved. Theologically, this is a process we call sanctification. The way that God takes us as believers and begins to work in our lives to shape us and mold us to be more and more and more like Jesus. How does he do that? 1 Peter, the very beginning of this book, the salutation of it addresses that. Look at this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles in dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. How does God move us to be more like Jesus, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit leads us to the right kind of change. Please hear me out. You're going to get the moments and know something needs to change. The enemy has a plan. What God creates, Satan counterfeits. The enemy has a plan. And it's not a good plan. It's to take you out of everything God wants for you. So what does that kind of change look like? Romans 8 makes this real clear. God decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. The son stands first in the line of humanity he restored. Leave that up there. It's as if God is saying, in your life, I'm a potter and I'm shaping you. And there are times I've got to take out some rough edges. There are times that I've got to reshape that because it's not going how I need to. And, and if you're wondering what, what's the shape that God is molding my life to look like, he makes it real clear to look like Jesus. That's the goal because better always looks like Jesus. Better always looks like Jesus. Some of y'all might be in a situation today where you're the only one in your family that's stepping up going, hey, you know what? I want things to get better. There's a problem in your marriage. Maybe there's a problem with your kids. It might be with your parents. Please hear me. If you get better, your family gets better. If you're willing to address the imperfection that's in your life and what's your, if you get better, your family gets better. Family, right? It's not always easy. There's some really distinct challenges to it. And, and if we're honest, we get it wrong a lot of the time. We get it wrong. But please hear what I'm about to say. Our hope is not in getting it right. Our hope is in the one who got it right for us. In the best case, 
Family's going to be hard. It's going to be challenging. There are already challenges. Every person walks into a family. So maybe today is the day for you to lay down your family. Maybe you came in with that hurt from a, a dad or a mom. And today is the day to lay that down and give it to God. Maybe you're here today and that hurt. Your, your parents have already passed away. And yet you're still carrying that woundedness. And maybe today, you, I just need to take that to the feet of Jesus and lay it down. Maybe today you came in with, you know, family just doesn't look the way I thought it would. And in your mind right now, that's a liability. It's, it feels broken. But maybe today, if you'll lay it down and give it to God, He can do something with it that, that you can't even imagine right now. There's hurt. There's healing. There's weakness, there's strength, and that's all in the heart of God for you today. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.